Them golden slippers. Oh, them golden slippers I was going to wear. Ta-da-da-da-da. Rasmus, excuse me if I seem a little distraught here. I'm working. It's all right. Well, what, what, are you, what are you griping about? Some weave, some spin, some till the soil. Da-da-da-da-dee. I fool around. And, uh, <laughs> we're living at it. You're jealous, aren't you? That's all right. Jealousy keeps you moving. Keeps the old behind wiggling. That's good. Bring it up. Very good. Now, uh, good, uh, good and... Wait a minute here. Excellent, excellent. Uh, speaking of obscenity, we have here a note for those of you who are uh, Christmas fans. Uh, we're keeping you abreast of the various developments as we rapidly approach the Yuletide season. And uh, here is the newest uh, fiasco to be visited upon us. Of course, it could be fun, now I think about it. <laughs> you can buy yourself a Santa Claus suit for your dog. And uh, if you are one of those people who have a little doggy who has everything, and I know some little doggies who do have everything, I suspect this could be the soupçon, the pièce de résistance, under the tree for that little schnauzer of yours. And uh, here the advertisement reads, Merry Christmas for your doggy. Uh, <laughs> complete with a black belt, gold buckle, hat, and, and I think this is kind of a nice touch, beard. Please bring it on. Uh, only in America, friends. Da, 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 da. I can imagine a guy who's been celebrating Christmas down at the office. He's been knocking them back, you know, for about 20 minutes, about 20 straight minutes, you know, as fast as he can get them, because they're on the boss tonight. He's been knocking them down, and about 45 minutes later, he reels into his little house in Darien. And he is greeted by a tiny four-legged Santa Claus with a little itsy bitsy white beard and those big rolling eyes. It's gonna be a great big wonderful Xmas time, friends. I can see it coming already. Rasmus, Rudy too. Can't you just see all these little kids sitting around the fireplace? waiting for Santa Claus to come down on Christmas Eve. And it turns out to be this raunchy old hound dog with his beard on sideways. And he stopped by about 45 extra fire plugs on the way in, you know. He's been sniffing around. And he's got this red suit on. And he's got this black belt around his gut that's kind of tossed sideways. And his hat's down over one ear. And he comes in and he goes, The kids are... Santa, Santa, what? Why up? Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. When all of a sudden, down the fireplace came Santa Claus himself. It was old Blue Tick, howling and baying, smelling up the joint, but ready for action. <laughs> Only in America. I think that's why we have to play this fine. It's a, it's a patriotic salute to the American creative mind. Alright, that's very good. Excellent. Oh boy, it's exciting, isn't it? 
can hardly wait to see what... Oh, speaking of great Christmas gifts. Oh, wow, did I see one. Oh, wowie. Whoo, shoo, magoo, whoo. I'm in, I'm in the dime store, and you know that, of course, the dime store probably has more war material today for sale than the U.S. Armory uh, ever saw. I mean, it's a fantastic collection of stuff. And in the middle of it all, I see a, uh, a, a big placard, and it says, World War II Equipment. And uh, I take a look at it. No other comment. It doesn't, say, it doesn't say what kind of equipment. It just says World War II Equipment. And attached to the placard is a helmet and uh, a sidearm, as we used to call it uh, euphemistically in the Army. That's a Roscoe. And uh, there's a sidearm there and a helmet. But the only thing that bugged me was that the, it was a funny color. The, the helmet was a strange color. It was Feldwebel Gray. It was field gray. It was a Wehrmacht helmet. And uh, the sidearm hanging under it was what they used to call in the Army a P-38, which is a special kind of uh, uh, sidearm that was liberated quite often from SS troops, particularly their officers, their Oberleutnants. And uh, here was this little helmet and this little sidearm, and it says just the thing to put under the tree this year. Now, somehow, I got the terrible picture of a little guy named Solly. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, incidentally, on the side of the helmet, to add to its, uh, to its realism, was the shield of the Third Reich. Not the swastika, but, the, you know, the shield, see? And uh, somehow, I got the picture of a little guy named Solly Bloomberg, in all of his innocence, running along the street, you know, all happy with this little piece of World War II equipment on his head, just running and running and running. Give me a little, that's a little American there. Bring that up. I doubt with, I wonder if they're selling these in Paris. Just a thing to put out of the tree. Rasputin's Rudy, Rudy too. Oh, they didn't have, nowhere on the card or the placard did it say German World War II equipment. Czechoslovakia, just World War II. Oh, well, uh, the more, uh, that reminds me, Matt. Would you please throw me some blues up there? Please throw me some blues. I, it just has to come now at this point. Uh, I, I'm sitting here thinking of, of uh, how, no matter what we do, we seem to get more and more hung up on the very thing we're trying to stay away from. You know, all, all over, everywhere you go, you see people yelling about peace. Everybody is you know, wants, to, wants to somehow create a paradise. Everybody wants to see heaven somehow materialized just at the other end of 4th Street, and they move in. And that's great. Incidentally, some guy wrote me a letter, and he says, anybody who, who, is, uh, who believes peace is attainable also believes that so is immortality attainable. Uh, <laughs> this is just a side comment, but uh, a couple of nights ago, I'm sitting around and I'm reading. I'm reading some Don Marquis, which is what I occasionally do when I get what they call uh, it's a throbbing above the top of the head. It's a it's a it's a kind of a TV syndrome from just thinking about television and various things of that nature. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading a little Don Marquis, and I'm thinking, uh, what is it? Where is it? Where does it go and why? Why constantly are we always nibbling on that fantastic apple? 
the one with the exploding seeds. Now, please uh, bring me on a little blues there, Matthew. Very good. I'm going to drink muddy water. I'm going to speak in a kitchen with my feet in the hall. The lesson of the moth. I was, I was talking to a moth the other evening. He was trying to break into an electric light bulb and fry himself on the wires. Why do you fellows pull this stunt, I ask him. Because it is the conventional thing for moths, or why? If that had been an uncovered candle instead of an electric light bulb, you would now be a small, unsightly cinder. Have you no sense? Plenty of it, he answered. But at times we get tired of using it and get bored by the routine and crave beauty and excitement. Fire is beautiful. And we know that if we get too close, it will kill us. But what does that matter? <laughs> it is better to be happy for a moment and be burned up with beauty than to live a long time and be bored all the while. So we wad up our life up into one little roll and then we shoot the roll. That is what life is for. It is better to be part of beauty for one instant and then cease to exist than to exist forever and never be a part of beauty. Oh, wow. Our attitude towards life is come easy, go easy. We are like human beings used to be before they became too civilized to enjoy themselves. <laughs> oh. And before I could argue him out of his philosophy, he went and immolated himself on a patent cigar lighter. Well, I do not agree with him myself. I would rather have half the happiness and twice the longevity. But at the same time, I wish there was something I wanted as badly as he wanted to fry himself. I was going to sleep in the kitchen with my feet, my feet out in the hall, baby. And then I'm going to go, go down to that old riverbank. I'm going to drink muddy, muddy water, muddy water till I curls up and die. Woo! Wow. <laughs> See, I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. Come here, Fido. Look at that little towsy there. Trotting through here with his little pack of goodies on his back. His little bag of toys. Uh, silly bag of caught in life's web. Speaking of bag caught in life's web, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, which means that it's whoopee time. 
like an opening night. Why is Valentine's here like a marching band? A race of fishes neck and neck. That's a great philosophy on that LP. That little thing we just played there, that little transcription. Live life with spirit. (laughs) You know, the word spirit, if you look it up, has several meanings. And one of them is liquid. I'd like to read to you an advertisement from the uh, October issue of Punch, the English Whoopi magazine. And this is from their motor issue. This is a little ad that says, What changes can you make to a car that's been called, quote, an object lesson to other manufacturers? That's a quote from Motor, one of the toughest automobile critique magazines in the world. And, quote, one of the outstanding cars of the decade. This is a comment by Autocar. The answer is you can't, except by adding new colors to the range. So that's what we've done. And now there are seven to choose from as far as rovers are concerned. They're talking about the Rover 2000. Here are the specifications. Low weight, 2 liter, 105 mile per hour engine, independent front and De Dion rear suspension, big non-fade disc brakes all around, four individual deep molded leather seats, a luxury continental-style GT interior. And this is a quote from an ad that appeared in the October issue of Punch magazine. And all I can say is, personally, from the thousands of miles I put on the Rover 2000s, one of the greatest cars in the world to drive, magnificent machine, the Rover 2000 Gran Turismo. Love is a boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, if, if it sounds like I'm a little fuzzy tonight, it's because you're listening to me on a rotten tuner. And uh, I would like to suggest to you that you go down to the electronic workshop at 26 West 8th Street. That's in the village. And uh, they'll clear the throat of your tuner. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you've been having a hang-up with your hi-fi equipment with the buzz and the thing with the shock on a knob and all that stuff... Well, uh, why don't you get with it and go down to the electronic workshop? And this is a professional uh, seller of high-fidelity equipment. They don't sell refrigerators. They don't sell television sets, Japanese binoculars. They don't sell. They don't sell snap-on bow ties. They sell high-fidelity equipment, and they've been one of the oldest organizations in that business. They started right up after World War II, and they know their people, and they know their customers. And they also sell that magnificent KLH, that magnificent KLH tuner, where if you hear Shepard on, you wouldn't believe it. You would not believe it. He sounds like Johnny Carson. He just sounds great and funny and like he's got a good agent. This is KLH, and you'll find it at Electronic Workshop, 26 West A Street, and their number to call is Gramercy 30140. 
Call Len Chase and just say one thing to him. Get Shepard an agent, will you? Okay? And now back to reality. And uh, speaking of reality, that reminds me of uh, a couple of weeks ago on the thing here. Uh, we did a thing, uh, we did a little piece about uh, what the individual's concept, what each man considers his own personal hell. Just how he sees it, how he feels it, what kind it is, what he, what he, uh, what he defines as hell itself. Now, uh, it's not necessarily a big dark room with a hot furnace. In fact, I suspect that the 20th century men never see hell that way. Because most 20th century men have never staked the furnace to a, to a load of coal. And so they don't really, they don't really, you know, they don't think in terms of hot coals and flames. Uh, well, maybe a, a lot of people I know in certain parts of town would consider hell a house with no air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> that's about as far as they go. It's a very, it's a very insipid hell. But there is a radio station out on the West Coast in Seattle, which we have occasionally commented on, and, and incidentally our show appears on this little FM station. It's the equivalent of uh, what used to be in the 19th century, the underground newspaper. You know, in the 19th century, when guys were angry, when they were polemicists, or they were, they, uh, they were vituperists, or... They, they were against the system. The first thing they did was start a little crummy newspaper that they ground out on a mimeograph machine down in a basement. Well, people don't read anymore. The newspaper world is rapidly beginning to decline. And so uh, a guy, when he decides to get mad today, the first thing he does is go into showbiz, get an agent, and become a comic. Now, uh, a lot of guys... <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's really the truth. Uh, the guys that used to publish angry newspapers or whatever it might be now get themselves a thing and they get booked on the Ed Sullivan show and they look out at the crown and say, yeah, wow, you know what I said the other day to my wife? <laughs> I'm sitting in the shower, see? And I look out and I says, hey, baby, John Savior is my Lindsay. <laughs> well, again, the next day, the Times says a fantastic delineation of our problems today. He put it in a nutshell and they goes on to play the Blue Angel. Well, uh, so there's another kind of angry man, though, and, and this is a very interesting new development. It's the angry FM station. Now, I'm not talking about the complacent FM station, which we call, uh, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not even talking about the non-commercial FM station, who thinks it's being very far out to play a whole afternoon of pre-Bach music. That's uh, very... It, takes a devil of a sense of honor and courage to do that, you know. Or maybe a couple of Dylan Thomas LPs. Uh, no, no, there's, there's something else. Uh, there's another kind, and this is, this is this little offbeat, angry, weed-grown radio station out in Seattle where it's beginning to, these things are beginning to spread all along the West Coast. And, and pretty soon, oh yeah, guys, they'll go out and they'll get themselves a little FM uh, franchise, and they'll, 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 it costs a couple of thousand dollars and they set themselves up in a little room with a little hot and a little electric fan blowing on them and they get a little microphone and they're in business. Now here is their editorial from their program guide, which came out this, this particular month. And uh, listen to the kind of editorials they come up with. I'd like to read this to you because it's being, it was written by a broadcaster. 
It was written by a guy in the broad... I don't know who he is. He's just the guy that writes their little program guide. And here's what they call their program guide. It says, uh, Crab Program Guide. What a great name for a station. K-R-A-B. Crab. <laughs> and, and, and they start out by saying, These guides are put together by a salty volunteer crew every Friday and are mailed to subscribers who make a semi-solvent by their tax-deductible contributions. Now, here is, is this month's, uh, this is this month's editorial. You all set in there? Bring me a little bit of that in that. That's, a, well, that's what we need. You know, you know the hell reserved for commercial broadcasters, don't you? You notice he assumes that commercial broadcasters are going to you know where. You know the hell reserved for commercial broadcasters, don't you? It's an eternity in a brightly lit, featureless room. Through an infinite number of speakers come the voices of the Rolling Stones, alternating with downtown. It never stops. There is no time. There is no respite at all. Through all eternity, on and on and on, a brightly lit, characterless room. Oh yes, and man's mind in the hell we envision is keyed up, keyed up, driven, keyed up, with an infinite dosage of dexedrine. Woohoo! Let's go! It's old Smiley Chucky here for you. We got rock and roll. The time now is 15 minutes past 7, 20 minutes past 8, 18 minutes past 20. Let's go! Let's go! There is no sleep. No sleep at all. The only respite is a paste-on smile mannequin that wheels through every 20 minutes. It's Smiling Dan, the eternal salesman who never stops bubbling about some damn dishwasher or car or deodorant. On and on. The broadcaster lonely, terribly bored in his sleepless, darkless, music-driven hell tries to talk to Smiling Dan. But all he does is blather on about quality friends and prices, friends, and satisfied customers everywhere. trouble with those troublesome acne driven pimples kids well it's acne off this month yes and they go on that you want to hear the rest of their comment this is so true 
They go on to say, we will never be able to fathom the complete lack of depth of broadcasters' tastes. We're not speaking now about listener pressure or the FCC or newspaper critics. We simply don't see the average broadcaster's resistance to anything intellectual or thoughtful or big. One time in that great abyss called the past. We worked for a commercial broadcaster. And the one treat of our week came on Sundays when we were allowed an hour for a classical music program. We planned it all week, and it was good. One time, after an hour of harpsichord music, the boss called up and said, uh, uh, say, uh, you lay off that tinkly stuff. That's just a little too much, that tinkly stuff. We paused. You're right. We said, it is too much. And we left the next day. And let's see. Here's the next page. You want to hear more about this? This is a fascinating little editorial. It says, the daring of broadcasters is shown in their buildings. From the cesspool of our past comes this story. One time we went to a television station in Philadelphia to ask for a job. We got stuck in the reception room for a good long time, and the memory of it still reeks. Two benches, a reception desk, a switchboard, a stainless steel receptionist, a wall full of plaques, and a 21-inch Dumont television set. A television set right there in Newcastle. It's like taking your own sack lunch to a three-star Michelin restaurant. It's like finding yourself in a compromising position with some doll and then pulling out an old copy of Tropic of Cancer. When someone gives us a television station, the first thing we are going to do is to pull down all those blank walls. The reception room is going to be a proper introduction to the art of transmission of pictures. Glass walls will lead the eye past a complex red plate mercury vapor blue tube. There will be a jungle of green and purple and black wires. To the left will be the main control room, with its eight or twelve monitor screens and dials frittering up and down. Through the glass of the control room will be a studio with sets and lights and people. Through the glass wall of the studio will be another studio, dark, ready to be used. To the right will be the offices of the hundreds of workers who produce the jungle of paper which makes the picture which comes before our unwilling eyes. And there, way in the distance, through the haze of hate and jealousy, of envy and ambition, sits the master of the station. As visible to the visitor as is his product, which is, after all, only an endlessly duplicated image. While we sat in the walled-in box, the reception room, all we could do was sit, and finally we were trapped into the gray picture of several gray people with gray smiles. And they were asking dreary housewives to think dreary thoughts, answer dreary questions. Can any of us imagine the immense effort, equipment, expense that goes into the act of transmission of such an abortion all the way across the country? Such a big sky. Such a little people. 
Anyway, the afternoon wasn't totally wasted because we got the idea for a superb afternoon television series. Can you give me a little uh, mood music there and that rock and roll version of that little little anything? It just oh, don't, don't. Very good. All right, let's go. Time once again for the favorite housewife show of the nation. And here he is, your MC. Here he comes out. Give him a great big hand. A great big hand. He comes rocking in a hole on the stage. Let's go, gals. The MC would be neither silly nor glib. He'd be a little weasened monkey of a prophet. He'd rub his wrinkled hands, and he'd shout questions at the puzzled housewives who came only to be entertained, only to laugh, and forget their pop-up instant lives. Why are you here? He'd shout at the woman in the purple-flowered hat. Well, well, I... She'd mutter, thinking, I must be in the wrong place. Don't you miss the opportunity of thinking, <laughs> he'd cackle. Why must you dry up your... Why must you dry up your poor little helpless mind before the TV set, huh? I... I don't... She'd say and think, This can't be Art Linkletter. He doesn't ask such awful questions. He'd scoot up to her, hobble around her, poking her, peering into her nervous eyes. Look at yourself. Look at yourself, he'd shriek. And he'd pull a rope, and a flood of mirrors would come rattling down. Her consolation prize for a job. Ill done. The audience would be puzzled and nervous, most of them, except for a tiny collection of fools and madmen and prophets. They would neither laugh nor applaud, but they would know that the end of the program would be would end of the program would be the end of the world, because of course the program would be named. Watch it there, Matt. Keep your eye on Daddy. The program would be named. What does it all mean? Be sure to hear it again tomorrow, if you can. It's fantastic. Brought to you by the new oily light green, all magic detergent that does it all. And the sponsor would be the great darkness somewhere up there in the sky. I'm forever blowing bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. I fly so high. What was that that just flew through the studio? Oh, sales manager? Oh, I see. <laughs> so hard, Bob. <laughs> and nearly reached the sky. You know, that, that reminds me of my own personal, if I may get a little personal here. And, uh... Who's to say nay? Uh, I, I had I had one time in my somewhat checkered commercial career. You know, you don't ever hear many stories about radio. Radio as a way of life and radio as a field to work in. You're constantly hearing people being interviewed about how it is in the movies, uh, how it is in the theater, how it is to do a nightclub act, how it is to write a newspaper column, or how it is to write a book. And yet... One of the most all-inclusive mediums that we have today is radio. 
There are probably far more people who hear a radio set any given day than ever read a book, than ever even watch a television set, for that matter, on a given day. And the millions and billions of hours that are broadcast nightly, daily, yearly, oh, trillions, wow, goes on and on. And yet you never hear anybody talking about what kind of a life it is, uh, uh, what, what this broadcast, somehow uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great closed book. Well, I'll never forget one time when I, I was just getting started in this business. And uh, just like any other uh, thing, when, when, you're, when you're just beginning, you, you do almost anything. You, you, in fact, this is the way you learn businesses, any kind of creative work or semi-creative work. If you're going to be in radio, you have to practically do, have done everything at one time or another. And I'm this kid, see, and I get this job at this giant 50,000-watt station out in the Midwest, and boy, did it lay down a signal. This station, right now, at this very moment, I don't care where you are in the country, if you tune down to the frequency of that station, you will hear it barreling through like a beacon of darkness. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a true know-nothing station. Of course, in those days, I didn't know anything myself. Not that I do now. But uh, even at that time, I was vaguely aware of the nibbling mice of doubt. Uh, I, I felt uh, at times that I was being eaten by small, uh, flesh-eating clams. But uh, I, I got the job in this radio station. It was a big baby. I mean, a not, not big physically, but it had a signal that was just unstoppable. And they had their transmitter out in the hills. And the antenna was up on six or seven. They had a big antenna, an array they actually had. They didn't have the kind of antenna that we're used to seeing when we drive along the big turnpikes on the east or the west coast. We see this little, this little rod sticking up in the air. I'm talking about an antenna array. They had seven or eight giant towers laying out there. And they put out an enormous cloverleaf pattern all over the, all over the hemisphere. In fact, one of their station breaks, I'll never forget making that station break, and, and it's almost impossible to believe that, that, such, a, that a, uh, such a station break would be used. They had a station break that said, the only station heard regularly on Guadalcanal. And they meant it. They were the only station heard regularly on Guadalcanal. They just laid that signal out all over the world. And uh, I, I, I would do a show at night. Uh, I remember doing this show uh, where, where they, people would send in mail for one thing and another. And I would get more mail from South America, more mail from places like uh, Sweden, more mail from places oh, all over the world. Just an incredible signal. I even used to get letters, and this, this is the kind of thing that gives you pause when you think of some broadcasting stations. I used to get letters regularly from a fan club that had started in New Zealand. They heard this station regularly on broadcast. Now, that's not short wave. Uh, that means that if you had your little, your little transistor radio there and you're listening to me and you move the dial a little bit, you start hearing this guy talking somewhere off in Australia, coming in in the middle of the afternoon. There it was. And so that was the kind of station that was. Now, I will describe to you, however, what kind of a station it was. It's very different. We, we broadcast from a series of tiny sealed rooms in a hotel. Now, hotels themselves 
have a peculiar kind of purgatory quality to them. Uh, I've always felt that that one of the spookiest places that, that a man could die or a man could have any important thing happen to him is in a hotel room. Uh, you're not, <laughs> you're not even, it's, it's truly not fish nor fowl. They don't even seem to have the uh, peculiar kind of personality of a motel. At least your own car's out in front, you know. It's a, somehow there are trees and there's wood, there's a sky overhead, at least in a motel. But, but this is a hotel and a, and a big one, a big stone, it had stone front and it had, it had big blocks and glass and, and those, those peculiar musty smelling carpets and all the walls were painted gray. And up there on the fourth floor, way tucked in the back, sealed off from the rest of the hotel, no one could come in there, absolutely sealed off completely, was the station. They didn't even have signs up that said what the station was. Uh, just, just sealed off. And we would go through these glass doors with our own key that worked on an electronic switching system. You just bring, oh, would go and it would open up. <sighs> Electric. Nobody. There was no receptionist. Nothing. It would just go. <sighs> and you'd be in the studios. Silent. Dead. And you'd finally get to the studio where you were to work. And uh, there was a series of hotel rooms. No engineer, by the way. The engineer was anywhere from 40 to 50 feet, maybe 100 feet away, in, a, in his own little cubicle, locked in way down the hall. And your only contact with him was with a little one-way telephone. You could pick it up. It looked like one of these little Mickey Mouse telephones, you know. They sell it to toys, toy stores. And you'd pick it up and you'd have to shout on, Hey, bud, are you in there tonight? And I'd hear, yeah, okay, let's go. We got three seconds to air time. Okay, bud. And the room was absolutely empty, except for a dark red carpet. All the, all the windows had been boarded up with soundproofing material. You couldn't even hear the sound of the air conditioning. It was sealed. Three doors led to the outside corridor. And directly in the middle of the room was a throne, just a throne, a big leather chair that revolved, and circling the leather chair was a gray horseshoe, and directly in front of the leather chair, as the chair sat into the loop of the horseshoe, there was a stand, and on the stand there was a series of glass sheets, glassine sheets, they were, they were thousands of commercials all put together in a series of ringed notebooks. And coming out of the desk was the microphone. Your connection with the outside world. Just stuck up there, clean, pristine, antiseptic. As far as I remember, it didn't even have so much as an electrovoice label on it. Nothing. Just a little gray microphone. And on the left hand, side of the resident of the throne was a big presto turntable. On the right-hand side was a presto turntable. And directly behind him in a little movable cart was the show. 422 hillbilly records worn gray with constant repetition. They'd been worn so thin that you could hold them up to the light and you could read the on-the-air sign right through them. They had been worn down that much. The Delmore Twins. The Delmore Twins. 
Cowboy Copas, Hank Williams, Hank Williams, Hank Stone, Hank Hank, Stone Stone, Webb Webb, Webb Ubley, Ubley Webley. On and on and on and on they went. On and on and on they sang. I'll be coming round a mountain when he come. I'll be, oh, you don't know how you killed me last night, baby. On and on and on and on and on. And the commercials would go on and on and on. And I would sit there in my little leather throne. Exactly at midnight, a red light would go. That's all. A red light would go on, and that meant that 27 million people out there in the darkness in New Zealand, in Sweden, in Upper Zambia, in Ohio, in West Virginia, in Yucatan, were ready to hear the Delmore twins and the commercials that began. Friends, have you got a loved one out there lying in an unmarked grave tonight because you can't afford a headstone? Well, the Peoria Rockland Monument Corporation now makes available to you. Makes available to you with a money-back guarantee. You must be satisfied or your money cheerfully refunded. A new marble-colored plastic thyrene, beautifully illustrated, beautifully done monument for that loved one. And now here comes the Delmore twins on and on and on all through the night. And then at 7 o'clock in the morning, the red light would go out. And no one would say a word. I would get up in silence and walk out through the swinging glass doors and down through the mechanical elevator and into the sunlight. And I'd see all the people walking around. And they had blood in them. See them. And they'd been sleeping at night. You could see they were wearing shoes and things. And I'd walk and I'd look at the sun for a while. And then I would quickly sleep. And then I would sit down on my gray throne again. And through the night, from midnight until seven, without even such much of a moment to take a breath, without even a moment to breathe, I would go on and on. One day, two days, three days, seven days a week. One day, two days, three days, seven days a week. Week after week, I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't know what record was playing. I didn't know what radio station I was working for. I didn't know where there were people listening or where they were. And the mail just kept pouring in great pieces of paper, sheets of paper, saying, please play for us the Broken Heart card game by the Delmore Twins. We think that record's so great. And please send us some gypsy fish bait oil. On and on and on and on. And there is my version of a private hell. Throughout all eternity, a red light going on in the silence. And the record tables playing on and on. The Delmore Twins, Hank Williams, Elvis Presley, yelling and whining out. The small, petty frustrations of man unable to make the scene with a chick. And Gypsy Fishbait Oil lacing it all together with the Peoria Rockland Buy It By Mail Gravestone Monument Corporation standing by to take care of us all. Good night, gang. <laughs>